Welcome back to the Wedding Wisdom Podcast with Doug Winters. I'm your host, Doug Winters, and today is episode 71. It's my great pleasure to introduce you to the one and only Christina Matucci, trained in musical theater at the prestigious NYU Tisch School of the Arts. She has found her career-defining role as David Beam's right hand, or as she calls it, his number two. So sit back and relax and enjoy as Christina takes us behind the scenes of the world's most glamorous events and so much more. Without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation. There you are. There you are. I watched your TEDx talk, and I watched you on an, another video podcast with someone that I didn't know that I probably should. Okay. Blink events. Um, Blink, yep. With uh, Yep, 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 yep. They're out of Canada. First of all, let's introduce you. Okay. okay. Deal. <laughs> this is Christina, not Christine. Not Christine. Not Chrissy, not Tina. Definitely not Tina. The whole concept of the TED Talk, was, which is brilliant, and I want everyone to listen to it. You have to go to, it says TEDx Beacon Street. The full name of it is, on second thought, lessons from a number two. Correct. And you talk about being a number two, which is what I want to talk about. But here's the quote. Just knocked me out because it was so dead on. You started out by saying that 3% of millennials feel satisfied in their workspace. Then you said the struggle for recognition is wiping out the virtue of collaboration. It's troubling because we need that collaboration now more than ever from political partisanship to race relations to our global climate crisis. Solutions for the world's biggest problems won't come from any one hero. They'll be the product of many minds striving in concert. Now, how many times do you get your own words read back to you? Rarely. <laughs> Check this out. You ready? Sure. We are the sous chefs, the studio musicians, the backup singers, the coders, the paralegals, the copy editors, the research scientists. Our roles have purpose and it can be deeply fulfilling. And then the, the line that blew me away. The final bow of a curtain call belongs to the ensemble, not the leading actors. In other words, you, you start out the TED Talk, and everyone really has to listen to this because it's really brilliant. You started out by saying, it's not my name on the door, but then again, I don't have to worry about insurance. I don't have to worry about payroll. It's not my money that, that's on the line. Then again, you are the executive director of maybe the top event planning firm in the country, if not the world. Thank you. I mean, we have a wonderful community of event designers in the world. And I am proud to be amongst them. And I am proud to work for David, but you're absolutely right. It is the talk at the end of the day is about collaboration. And it's about collaboration. And I use the number two as an entry point, because if you think about it, everybody has a number two, no matter where you are in the food chain of a corporation. Mm -hmm. If you're the number one, technically you're the number two to your client. Oh, you that's think about right. That. So everybody all the way down the line has a number two. You know, when you're going through the process of a TED talk, there are rules within the TED world. You cannot leave the circle unless you're doing some sort of performance work. Wait, what circle? When you do a TED talk, the emblem 
of a TED Talk is that you are standing in the red circle. The red circle is a carpet or a red painted circle. That is where you give your talk from. And part of the, when TED first originated, part of the rules were you don't leave the circle. It, 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 it created an equal playing field for every speaker who got up there. You had a certain time limit that you had to be underneath and you had to speak within the circle. And all of the content, all of any visuals that you might use, which I chose not to, had to be yours. So you couldn't use artwork or music. I love to use music when I'm giving my talks. In TED, you don't have those, what I'm going to call crutches. You don't have a confidence monitor. If you go up during a TED Talk, going up meaning you lose your line, if you go up, you're on your own. So when you approach a TED Talk like that, going back to your original comment of collaboration and the number two, you go through many, many iterations writing that talk. I had over 500 hours poured into my particular TED Talk. One of the things that ended up on the cutting room floor was an analogy that I loved. It ended up not fitting within the thread of my talk, which was that there is only one person on the cover of Forbes, but you can bet when that magazine comes out, somebody is at home that night pouring themselves a big glass of wine or a stiff bourbon and looking at that magazine and saying, you know what? I helped get that person there. And that's their shared victory too. And so when we're talking about creating workspaces where everybody feels of worth and of value, part of why I have been with David for 18 years strong and, and why we have such low turnover within our company is that David, he is such a magnanimous leader in that he grants us credit. He applauds his team. It's not just the David show. It's team beam. And we say that with pride. Why don't we explain who David beam is? Of course. Of course. I mean, he's a legend in the industry. I personally have never worked with him dying to, we just got along great. I mean, I haven't got him to sing on the podcast. That's saying something. I think he sang two bars of my boy, Bill. Oh. And he does have a great voice. Oh. So I said, what would be your favorite role? And he says, believe it or not, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. He loves that show. I had said to him, just looking at you, I would think it would be some Man of La Mancha, soliloquy from Carousel. You know? No, good man, Charlie Brown. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. I mean, God bless him. <laughs> and, and that's really where David and I, our story begins we both have theater backgrounds. So David has his master's. I didn't go that far. I stopped at my bachelor's of fine arts, but we both have degrees in musical theater. I went to Tisch School of the Arts and I was in a, a specific studio, which is no longer in existence, called CAP 21, which stood for the Collaborative Arts Project for the 21st Century. And we were the only musical theater studio at NYU at the time. So many of the larger names that have graced Broadway and TV and movies were some of my classmates. Um, Matthew Morrison is a dear, dear friend. Talked to him last night. Kristen Bell was a year behind me. Nikki James, who was in the Book of Mormon. So David and I both started off in theater. I started off in California, and David is from the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, a little town. If you're from there, it's called Luray, but if you're from anywhere else, it's Luray. 
And <laughs> he grew up doing flowers in his godfather's flower shop. He was a waiter at the Mimslin Inn. And so he understood hospitality and events from the ground up. It was part of really his, his growing up. He sort of went through many career evolutions. He was a teacher. He was managing an opera company. Then he came to New York and he started working for Robert Isabel, who, if you know about the special event industry, particularly in event design, Robert Isabel was the grandfather of us all. Yeah, he was really the founding father. All those Studio 54 guys. Exactly. He designed for Studio 54. And so David started working for him and really learned the ropes. And he opened his own business shortly thereafter. And I want to say within maybe two years of opening, he got Catherine Zeta-Jones and Michael Douglas's wedding at the plaza. And that was really the feather in his cap. But immediately after that, we experienced 9-11. This is where our roads converge. In May of 2001, I'm graduating from NYU. I'm up for my first Broadway show. I've performed at Lincoln Center. I've performed at Carnegie Hall. I'm on this amazing trajectory to doing Broadway. And you're surrounded by all these incredibly talented people. Super talented people, super talented support system. Graduated in May. My grandmother passed away in June. My dad died in July at the age of 57, completely wow. out of the blue, and 9-11 happened that September. Oh my God, nice couple of months. It's about as good as 2020, Doug. So <laughs> I know, and it keeps getting worse. You, it's unbelievable. But what the brilliant thing that came out of 2001 was, I said, I don't want to do this anymore. That side of me switched off. It became a matter of survival. It became a matter of not being able to put myself, because to be a brilliant actor, a brilliant performer, you have to be willing to crack open your rib cage and show your heart to the world. Oh yeah, all day, every day. All day, at every audition. And at that time to have gone through such grief, I mean, truly my father was, I often say it was like having the sun in my universe put out. And I meant that. What was the cause of death? He had a heart attack at work and he had a very stressful job and he just had a heart attack wow. and he was gone like that. But he lived life to the fullest in every way. And so I didn't want to be out there every day just showing my heart to the world. I had healing to do. Oh, because so much of you was crushed. So much of me was crushed. Much like the sun going out, my orbit had changed and I needed to find my path and my track again. I was working a retail job to just cover my rent. And every night I'd go home and I'd grieve and I'd open up a bottle of wine and I'd flip through the pages of my bridal magazine. All right. Now, what got you into that? Part of it is just the dream of like being married and walking down the aisle, which Doug, I still haven't figured that one out. So if somebody out there in the, <laughs> in the podcast world, if you can lead me to someone, I'm open. But <laughs> what got me into that was that I love the pageantry of it. I love the theatricality of weddings. I love the orchestration of weddings. And I love the set design of weddings. And when Martha Stewart's Wedding Magazine came out, I mean, I was all over that thing. I recently had the opportunity to spend some time with Darcy Miller Nussbaum, who used to be the editor-in-chief of Martha Stewart's Wedding. When her wedding came out and Martha Stewart's wedding, 
I lost my whole mind. I still have the magazine on my bookshelf. It was that pivotal to my vision for my career. I remember it, it was at the Four Seasons restaurant. She wore a Vera Wang gown with these amazing pleats in the back. She had a cockambouche wedding cake. It was everything that I wanted to be a part of. It was all of the pageantry and society and just delicious in every way. And so I decided, you know, I'd come home at night crying. That wasn't how I wanted to live my life, Doug. So I was like, why don't I do something that makes me happy? Why don't I do weddings? And the not.com had just started. And I, I, I went to my, because at that time you didn't have internet in your apartment. Hey, you don't have to whisper. I'm older <laughs> than you are. <laughs> so I went down to the local internet cafe and I signed up on the not.com as a bride because that was the only way you could get access. I lied. I said I was getting married on such and such a date, a, a mystery man. And I pulled up all of the event designers. Now, in my mind, how did I know one from the other? Of course, I knew Preston. Of course, I knew Colin. They were the celebrities at the time because they were doing Oprah and they were doing the TV, sh the morning shows. They were the stars. So I looked at their profiles and, well, their profiles had, the way that the not rated them was dollar signs. They had $5 signs by their name. Right. So I sorted all the rest of the event designers <laughs> by $5 signs. And then I started looking at their websites and I came across David's and all he had was a landing page. It was a tulip, a line drawn tulip with a watercolor background. And I started doing some research and I said, oh my God, this man has not been in business for long. He's an artist. I can organize him. I can make him better. And I don't have to compete with a coterie of other young men and women who might be in administrative positions under Colin or under Preston. So I started stalking David, basically. And this is a lesson <laughs> for anybody who's out there right now yeah. looking for work. I know a lot of people are looking for work. And I was dogged, Doug. I, I mean, I was outrageous. I faxed David a cover letter and a resume every month for eight months. Wow. I would fax him the cover letter and the resume on the first Monday of the month. And then I would call his office on the first Wednesday of the month until finally <laughs> he was like, okay, fine. I'll talk to this girl. Now he was living and working out of his studio, which is no longer, it's now Hudson Yards. Oh, wow. Okay. And he didn't want me to see that he was living and working in his studio. So we met at the W Union Square. I wore my first suit from Ann Taylor and a pink, pink button down shirt because I thought that was wedding. He might have been wearing one of his two suits or something. <laughs> and I walked in and that was pretty much it. I started as a secretary. I remember playing Minecraft a lot. <laughs> and then one day I looked at him and I was like, can I write your proposals for you? Because I think I could do a good job and that'll free you up to meet with more clients. And he was like, sure, try this one. I'll tell you what I want. And I did it and that was it. He never wrote another proposal. He conceptualizes it and then we on the sales team take it over. But basically what I did was I made myself integral to him. I made myself 
indispensable. Mm -hmm. I grew and developed with him. And now we have this really, really amazingly robust company with, I think, some of the most talented people in all of the special events industry who I am beyond proud to call my colleagues. The final bow of a curtain call belongs to the ensemble, not the leading actors. And that rolls down to our freelance teams as well. So when we're working on destination projects, mm -hmm. we believe in staff meals. We believe in a dinner or a breakfast after everything is over where we all get together and thank each other. Part of why we have such an incredibly robust freelance team of artisans, and I don't just say freelancers, but I think it's so important to honor who they are and the work that they do because without our freelancers and our artisan freelancers, we couldn't do this job. They are our muscles, they are our eyes, they are our emissaries when we can't be everywhere at one time. And it's our responsibility to take care of them as they take care of us. But I mean, he recognizes talent when he sees it and he's not afraid to share. Well, and we are only the sum of our parts. Yeah. It, it, all well and good to have your name on the door. And I know he takes tremendous pride in that. And as a visionary, implementers such as myself need to honor that vision. Without vision, implementers and executors have nothing to work for. But without implementers and executors, vision is for naught. And if you're an implementer, if you're in that number two spot, if you're working for someone that you don't believe in, or you don't believe is passionate about what they're doing, there's no way you can be passionate about it. Yeah, you'll get the job done for sure, but you get as involved as he does. Exactly. And that's really what my TED Talk is about. I think so many number ones, CEOs, founders, managers are fearful that if you empower your team, that somehow you will be eclipsed by them uh -huh. or one of them. And you know what? There is nothing to say that someone on your team, your number two, may go on to do their own work. But if you create a beautiful relationship, even if they do, you're going to rely upon each other down the road. This industry, more than any other, you cannot function as an island. It's almost impossible. And so to maintain those relationships, even if somebody does move on, it's important and it's powerful and it can only make you stronger and it can only reduce your turnover. You know, David has been incredibly supportive of me. I also do coaching on the side. I, I Now that I'm speaking, people have come to me for coaching help and I, I'm tremendously honored by that and I love it. And I, what kind of coaching? I've done personal branding. I've done messaging. So copywriting and messaging. I've done personal development work. I've done teamwork. I don't get into the nitty gritty of how your business is run. I'm getting into the interconnections of your right. team. I'm getting into how you are presenting yourself to the world. I mean, one of the most wonderful things about what David has allowed our team to do is that we are not prescriptive. Every single team member on the BEAM team has a very distinct personality. David encourages that and asks, you know, let's amplify that because 
much like there is a planner for every client, there's a client for each one of our sales team members. And we want our team to feel like they can be fully expressed. So as I'm now coaching, it's been tremendously rewarding because I'm seeing some of that turnover stop. I'm seeing people feeling more fulfilled. And that's a really wonderful, positive thing for me to be able to take all of this breadth of knowledge that I'm so indebted to David for and all of my theatrical training to speak and to get out there and to empower people. But it, it all doesn't matter unless you're paying it forward, right? And the coaching side of my work is really where I'm paying it forward. The performative nature of David and Ryan and myself is that it is the true essence of who we are. And because David allows our team to really be themselves, I posit that that is why our clients are able to make the connections that they do with us and to spend what they spend with us. And I'm going to tell you why. Because there's a, a really powerful book by an author, also a TED speaker, Virginia Postrel. And she wrote a book called The Power of Glamour. And in that book, she teaches us that glamour is not what we think glamour is. It's not the red carpet. It's not a limo. It's not the designer gowns. <laughs> glamour is a tool. And it's a tool we use to create yearning and a desire in someone else. It's like Top Gun, right? Think about that movie. Top Gun, there's no limos. There's no red carpet in that film, but it's very glamorous. That's the greatest recruiting poster ever, not to mention the most homoerotic movie ever made. <laughs> but it's very glamorous. Yeah. And in that right. glamour, we see the person who's being deemed as glamorous, the person who's using the tool of glamour, mm -hmm. and we want to be like them because we want to express our truest selves, right? And right. so when somebody is that transparent, that true about who they are, they're granting their client permission to be true. They're granting their client permission to dream. They're granting their client permission to be anything they want to be and their event to be anything they want it to be, I posit that that's one of the strongest selling techniques. Apart from storytelling, using the power of glamour, however you define it for yourself, whether it is performative, a fashionista, a fitness person, however you choose to be your truest self, when you do that, you open up a world of business that is absolutely undeniable. Can you explain the difference between an event designer and an event producer or planner? Okay. So in my mind, producer is the umbrella over us both. It is somebody who is dealing with the people logistics, the overall experience of the guests from the time they arrive, from the time the client contracts them to start building the event. They're the maestro of the creation. They're the maestro of the actual show. And then the maestro of the loadout too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An event designer, think of that as the art director. So they too are 
dealing with the entire experience, but tangentially. They're dealing with the sensory experience of the client. I use this as a very easy metaphor. It's Mm -hmm. way more complex than this, but I don't care where Aunt Betty's sitting, but I 100% care what Aunt, Aunt Betty's table looks like and how Aunt Betty's chair feels and that it's not too close to a speaker and that the light isn't shining in her eyes. But Ryan, as a planner, is going to be more concerned with starting with her Aunt Betty receiving her invitation. Uh-huh, Was that right. invitation properly addressed? Did we get her RSVP? What table is she at? Was she properly valeted? Did she get her coat check? Did she have her food allergies been respected and noted? And is everybody aware of those? And then in the midst of all that, holding the client's hand through the experience. All of us juggle multiple balls in the air. And a lot of times we're like, you know, when you have two jugglers, we're throwing balls to each other and bouncing them back. And the really epic partnerships between planners and designers is when you have that interplay. All right. So be, be, all right. Let me just hold your feet to the fire and uh, just, just to really define it. Cause I, I remember now when you said that, that David, long before this conversation even really came up, he said that he was an event designer. He doesn't do weddings without a planner. Or, or a really great venue representative who's able to take on that mantle. Right. So in other words, he doesn't want to be involved in the wedding invitations, in the seating, in the, the, the you know, that kind of stuff. As an art director, mm-hmm. we do care about what the invitations look like because we want the visual experience to be cohesive from the moment the guest gets that invitation. So we love it when clients and planners include us on invitation design, hey, can you give us Pantone colors of the tablecloths? We want it to really dovetail and marry so that every element, you know, when you're writing a TED talk, they say you you pick up the thread, you carry the thread throughout the talk. It's the same thing with special events. We're picking up the thread throughout the entire event. And when magic happens is when the planners and the designers play well together in the sandbox. Then you have an event that feels beautifully thought out. Jennifer Zabinski used that exact expression. What? The Have thread? everybody play nice in the sandbox. Oh, yeah. And I, and I have, Jennifer is fun. I love working with Jennifer's team. We have a great time together. And again, it's a back and forth. Yeah. There are so many wonderful planners that I have the privilege to work with in this industry. Because you're a designer, you and David are design team. Correct. The house of beam. Team beam. It's a great hashtag, team beam. It just rhymes so well. And we put the H in it. T-E-A-H-M-B-E-A-H-M. Oh, that's we had really funny. That for a while. I remember when the whole thing started with COVID and people getting unemployment and saying, you see all these beautiful people? They're not working. Yeah. And it's a team beam. And yeah. I was saying, that's so cool. Yeah. What a great feeling that all those people feel like they're part of your team, like you were saying. How did you word it? The, the, the drop-off or the, the amount of people that leave a business... Oh, the voluntary turnover. Voluntary turnover, yeah. You started to talk a little bit about you slash he create 
that family feel? I think when we have the opportunity and have the grace to do so, we did an, an, an amazing wedding with Lynn Easton of Easton Events. If you don't know her, I encourage you to, to check her out. You know what? I ask everyone that I interview to connect me with one or two new people. Yeah. Lynn is phenomenal. Lynn Easton, Easton Events out of Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I had an incredible time working on a project with her where we had a tremendous number of vendors on a job site at any given time. Tenting guys, lighting guys, rigging guys, bands, talent, audio technicians, valets, security. I had dressers, photographers, videographers. I had 300 wait staff. I say I, we. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, had yeah. all of that. Right. One of the most magical things we did for that event, and it was a very long build out and it was a very long lead up, but we created a commissary on that tent job because on any given day, we had 150 to 300 staff. All right. Now describe this because if people not aware of these really high end luxury yes. parties that you're talking about, when you say build out, what kind of time frame are we talking so about? So all in, all out, like from the minute the first truck arrived on the property to the minute the last truck left, probably looking at two and a half months all in. Wow. My personal time on the job site was about two and a half weeks. No kidding. Yes. And so- Was this a wedding or a corporate party? What, what was it? it I, it, 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 it was a special event, Doug. Okay. It was a special the, event. They're all special events. Um, it was a special event. Basically, we created a tent city in a field where there was nothing. We had to create the infrastructure. And so instead of all of these satellite teams having their food delivered, right. which would have been a tremendous amount of traffic onto this property every day. I mean, literally, we're talking about feeding a festival. We created a commissary. And the wonderful thing about it was everybody felt taken care of. Oh, uh, okay. And we would gather in that commissary and it created community across vendor teams. So at any one given time, I could be sitting at the commissary table having my lunch and I'm sitting with the tent guys and I'm talking to them about their families. Or I'm sitting with the musicians and they're getting ready and I'm like, hey guys, how you doing? How's the chicken today? Right. It created this wonderful sense of community. I am also a firm believer that when people feel cared for and appreciated, they are going to give you 150%. If they are shoved into a closet without air conditioning, Mm -hmm. they have to run across a field to go to the bathroom. They don't feel like their stuff is safe. Just taking care of people, whether they're the talent or whether they're the people paying the bills. Exactly. Exactly. It's very powerful. Extraordinarily powerful. Is this the story that David was telling me about where a guy just wanted to do a party in a field in Michigan? I can neither confirm nor deny, Doug. And he says, we literally had to build roads because 18 wheel trucks had to go over this. It's like we had to construct a city. I was there on that event and it was, was in fact, incredible. I will tell you that the event that I'm talking about is also the same story in my TED talk about the breaking vases. Can you just like do a quick 
version of that story? It's so great. So we were in this tent complex and right. where we were at working, we experienced a lot of volatility with the temperatures. We would show up at the tent in the morning and we're outfitted in Carhartt apparel. I mean, like bundled up. I've got hand warmers in my pockets, heat warmers <laughs> in my boots. I am barely holding it together. But by noon, the sun would come up and that tent would heat up. And by noon, I'm in a tank top wedding. I've got like a bandana in my head and I'm just trying to like make it through the day. We had temperature control, but being mindful stewards of our clients' budgets is important to us. And turning on AC and turning on temperature control in a tent like that costs money, right? Right. Yeah. So we had all of our materials loaded in, but Doug, I went yeah. to school for English lit and theater. <laughs> a science degree, as much as I love it, I did not garner in college. So I have no idea that wild swings in temperature impacts adhesives. Who knew? So I have a dance floor filled with vases and they're footed. So they sit on a base with the, with the trumpet that comes up mm -hmm. and we're about 36 hours away from the first guest <laughs> arriving to the event. And I look across the floor and I see that one of the vases is tilting. <laughs> like, how can that be? And with a snap, the trumpet popped off of the base of, of the vase and fell over and it hit the next one and the next one and the next one. And there was this explosion a breaking glass on the dance floor. I was the only one of my team in that portion of the complex. And one of the things that we do on <laughs> Team Beam, which I'm revealing to the world now, we learned long ago that when one of us were to get on the radio and say, oh my God, guys, I have an issue. Target doesn't set anybody up for success. Nobody can be successful with that mindset. Yeah. So we started using... I have an opportunity for greatness. <laughs> That's it. So I went on the radio and I said, I need all of Team Beam in the dinner tent. I have an opportunity for greatness. <laughs> and it was, it was magic. Faced with a dire challenge, with a challenge that could change the arc of the event. Sure. The precision of the Radio City Rockettes, the precision of an, an, of an invading army. I often think of bees. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we go into silence and we all know what needs to be done. We knew that the coasts were touring the tent in 20 minutes. Oh, so no. I had oh, you left that part out. Right. So I, <laughs> things get put on the cutting room floor, Doug, in a TED Talk. One portion of my crew was solely dedicated to getting that cleaned up and out. Another portion was dedicated to figuring out, okay, what is the actual loss? Another person was checking for injuries amongst my team. Another person was on the phone with the provider saying, what do you have in your inventory? Who have you sold it to? Compiling a list of everybody who had this vase. Within 30 minutes, all of the carnage had been cleared away. Carnage. And we had a truck being packed with replacement vases to be driven all night for a 5 a.m. delivery the next morning. David didn't know about it. it That's my favorite part of the story. David didn't know about it until it was all done. And he was gobsmacked. Yeah, you said you were sitting down for breakfast and you told him what had happened. And... We were sitting down for dinner. And we okay. and we just laughed at everybody's sort of like 
how we all kind of scampered into the scene and made it all happen. David and I many times during that event held each other side by side and said, who thought that we could have built this when I joined you and you were sleeping on a mattress in our studio. And I, I get emotional about it. Yeah, you know, it's beautiful. You know, I, I remember when, what I would consider a drop-off now was the big event for us. Describe we, what a drop-off is. Oh, like a drop-off for us is a simpler wedding in that there's not the logistical terrors involved with it. It's typically like a chuppah or a ceremonial decor. It's some arrangements for the cocktail tables. It's the personal flower suite. So the bouquets and the boutonnieres. And it's some okay. centerpieces. Maybe there's a big escort card piece. But we're not building experiential decor. I'm not building okay. wall flats. I'm not harvesting an entire field of peonies to fulfill the design. I'm not draping. I'm not rigging things from the ceiling. A drop-off is something that is, I don't want to say prescriptive because nothing that we do is prescriptive. Everything mm -hmm. that we do is custom design for our clients. Of course, yeah. But not every client needs to shoot the moon. At the end of of the day, the only thing that matters for a wedding is a bride and a groom and an officiant. <laughs> right. So when I say that it's a it's a drop-off, that's not going to diminish those clients. The reason why we call it a drop-off is that most of it is pre-produced in our warehouse. And so it's coming off the truck. In the Bronx. Most correct. Our, our production house is in the Bronx. <laughs> I paid attention. It's produced there and then it's loaded onto the truck and then it's delivered. And for the most part, it's being delivered in a state of like 80% complete. And then you're just fluffing on site. Whereas something like what I was talking about with this tent structure, nothing yeah. could be pre-done. Everything had to be built on site. When somebody asks me if I'm a designer, yes, I have a design sensibility. Everybody on Team Beam does. Right. But I leave the real intense design to David and our creative director. They have the vision. Where I thrive is I am I love ops. I love the logistics. I ops. like I like so funny. I like making all the parts of the puzzle fit together. God, I wish I had a you. In my coaching world, my tagline is the number two you wish you had. Yes. Again, a lot of the work I do in all of those silos that I discussed earlier, whether it's, you know, coaching a, a number one who has a fear of speaking or coaching some, a number one who doesn't really know their personal brand yet, or coaching a number one on their messaging and their copywriting. I hope that people lean on me like the number two they wish they had. And I will always stand proudly as David Beam's number two. And he and I adore each other. But the, but the Beam name is a brand. Exactly. And it's not so much a brand. It's a quality of work. It's a benchmark of excellence. It's a benchmark of quality. It's a benchmark, I hope, of customer service. Those are the things we as a team strive for. And those are the things that David Beam has led us to aspire to. But there's a reason why he put his name on the door. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't for ego. It was because it held him accountable.
And I take that very seriously. And I believe our team takes that very seriously. It's a brand. Yeah. It, is, it is a brand. And, and it's a brand I'm incredibly happy and honored and pleased to be a part of. Well, you are like a dream come true for any owner of a company. It's like someone would have to manufacture you if you know if you didn't exist. I'm not perfect, believe me. David and I go at it. <laughs> yeah, there are some people out there that are not as lovely as I'm. Mean, we're painting the rosiest picture in the world. Yeah. Of this industry. Yeah. You know, and it's there are some ugly people out there. There are people in it just for the money. They're just for the commissions, just for the. And that makes me sad on, on many levels. But the thing that makes me the most sad about it is that what we do is an art. What yeah. we do collectively as an industry is an art. And it's not received as such because what we do is ephemeral. It exists only for the eight hours in which that party happens. Until you load out. We're not architects. We don't have a building left on the street. There's no art that moves from museum to museum or sculpture that lives in someone's house and is passed down from generation to generation. All we have as representatives of our work is the photography and videography of the evening and more importantly the memories that are left in the hearts and minds of our clients and their guests at the end of the day after after covid is over and we are we are looking back on 2020 in our rearview mirror saying whoo Oh, Lord, God. I have made it through that. <laughs> I hope we are looking at our work with refreshed, clean lenses to say what we do is an art and we need to treat it as such. And so hopefully those people who are in this industry, as you say, for the bucks or the fame or the whatever, whatever their yeah, motivation yeah, sure. may be. Yeah. I hope that this time has made them reframe their perspective on the industry to elevate their game and say, no, I'm an artist because that is what we are. What a perfect way to end a podcast. Thank you. <laughs> I try. <laughs> Christina, you are so amazing. Oh, thank it, you, Doug. My next step is to get you and David together. Oh, I'd love that. Thank you for this time. You're the best. Okay. Thank you, sir. Bye -bye. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Believe it or not, you can follow Christina at Tucci Mama, T-E-U-C-C-I-M-A-M-A -M -A, on Instagram. And you can follow me at Doug Winters, Inc. And don't forget to check out David Beam's extraordinary Instagram page at, of course, David Beam. B-E-A-H-M. As usual, please stay safe, stay strong, listen to the scientists, and we will get out of this together. And I will see you in a couple of days with my special guest, Michelle Rago. Enjoy the rest of the week. Bye-bye now.